Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and islc.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjus Duma. Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert. I'm your host, Dr. Narjus Duma. I'm a thoracic oncologist at the Lowe Center for Thoracic Oncology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. I'm honored today to be joined by Dr. Leah Bacos and Dr. Patrick Ford. Dr. Leah Bacos is an associate professor of cardiothoracic surgery in the Division of Thoracic Surgery at Stanford Healthcare and Palo Alto VA Healthcare System. Dr. Patrick Ford is a director of thoracic oncology clinical research program and an associate professor of oncology at Job Hopkins University. Leah and Patrick, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Thank you very much, Andy. So first, we really want to learn about your journey to thoracic oncology, medical oncology, and surgery. I will start with Leah. So what made you pursue a career in thoracic surgery? Thanks for asking that. Uh, I I think it really, I sort of always thought I wanted to be a surgeon, which sounds a little bit weird, uh, but but true uh, nonetheless. And, you know, I like medicine. I like puzzles. I like the manual aspect of what we do. So from a technical standpoint, and that was like from middle school. Originally, I thought I wanted to be a neurosurgeon, believe it or not, but uh, eventually found my way to general surgery and then thoracic surgery once I'd been introduced to uh, the chest and chest anatomy and whatnot. So I think surgical oncology being the driver of much of what we do in thoracic surgery is also a really interesting area that no two tumors are created equal, if you will. And uh, it's just a really fun field. I always tell medical students that the chest is like a, a treasure trove of interesting things. I love that analogy, and I think you may have convinced a few medical students after that to go into <laughs> thoracic oncology. Hopefully. So, Dr. Ford, how was your journey to thoracic medical oncology? Yeah, it was um, kind of a mixture of things, Angie. I, I grew up in Ireland, and I, I trained there. I did my medical school, my residency, and my fellowship there. So it's a, it was a, quite a long path to come here to the U.S. But um, I remember when I was an intern, I was actually doing... Um, medical oncology as part of my intern year and I enjoyed that and it was around the time that some of the uh, the targeted drugs were first starting to be approved about 2005. Um, at the same time uh, my dad actually was receiving treatment for colorectal cancer at the time and he he ultimately passed away from from colon cancer but I think that combination it was a very impactful time. Uh, we were starting to finally see kind of targeted drugs and, and new therapies being translated from the lab to the clinic. Um, and obviously there have been mentors along the way, which have kept up that interest and spurred me on like um, Julie Bramer and here at Johns Hopkins, who is my mentor as a fellow. And obviously she was very instrumental in developing immunotherapy um, for lung cancer. And I think, I think all of those things put together kind of <laughs> melded me into becoming a thoracic oncologist. And I've, I've never, um, regretted that decision. Well, thank you for sharing with us. We are very excited to have a multidisciplinary uh, team today. Uh, we have medical oncologists and we have a thoracic surgeon. 
Today, we're going to discuss the role of immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting. And we would like to learn, you know, how multidisciplinary teams work at your respective institutions before we get to the bulk of the discussion. I will start with Leah. Do you have a multidisciplinary clinic? How do you work with your medical oncology team? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting because the question kind of wants me to speak to the the formal ways in which we engage, but I'd have to say that there are at least as many informal ways in which we are forever creating touch points with one another and crosstalk and discussions about various patients and whatnot. So I would say we have just as many informal interactions as formal interactions, but formally, you know, just like all cancer centers have um, at the Stanford Cancer Institute, we've got our multidisciplinary tumor board. We also have a molecular tumor board that occurs once a month. The regular tumor board occurs once a week. And what's interesting there is that aside from the sort of usual discussion of cases, we also have the option where patients can elect to have an in-person second opinion, usually type of tumor, tumor board visit. Uh, and in that setting, they're not actually physically present at the tumor board, but we have all their data. We discuss their case. And depending upon what their reason is for, for seeking out the opinion of those of, of, of the Stanford team, we then have, you know, dispatch whomever it is uh, that is the relevant specialties to go down and see the patient in clinic for an in-person visit where we kind of go over everything and, and, and provide recommendations and that sort of thing. So it's a nice way for patients to be seen by whomever they need to be seen all in one setting. So most often I would say it's usually medical oncology and either radiation oncology or surgery, but occasionally it's all three of us. And then the other nice aspect of the way things are set up there, we've got uh, five surgeons and I want to say seven oncologists. So every, every day in clinic, uh, there is at least one surgeon and at least one, usually more than one um, medical oncologist. And we're all in the same workroom. So there's a whole lot of crosstalk and, and, and sharing of information and that sort of thing. Hey, can you take a look at the scan? Here's your lady. I'm seeing her back again. Do you want to come pop in and see her with me? Um, which is why I emphasize the informal aspect of things because you know, as, as we can all attest to sitting here on this, on this podcast, that the care coordination and complex patients can be incredibly challenging and incredibly time consuming. So having the immediacy of your colleagues being right there within arm's reach of you is, is, is really critical to, to, to getting them, getting their care expedited. Thank you so much. Over time, we continue to learn about how people communicate. We have heard messages, chats, uh, phone calls, group texts, emails. So we continue to learn how, you know, each institution does this differently. So Patrick, how is at your institution, how do you work with your multi-D team? Yeah, I think, I think we've been very, um, uh, it's, it's evolved over the years. Um, so I've been at Hopkins for 10 years now and just prior to my starting, um, there was a multidisciplinary uh, clinic which was launched by Russell Hales, who's our radiation oncologist or one of our radiation oncologists. And the model there was that the patients uh, patients with stage uh, potentially surgically resectable, or perhaps more uh, more often stage three non-small cell lung cancer, where there's a question of surgery or radiation or chemo radiation, they would be triaged when the referral comes in or the patient contacts us for 
for an opinion, those patients would be triaged towards the multidisciplinary clinic. And that usually occurs on a Wednesday. Um, and during the morning, um, they would meet with our clinical nurse, uh, nurse specialist, uh, Peggy Lang. Um, she would take their history and then um, provide education about lung cancer in general, about a new diagnosis and uh, provide information on the advocacy organizations and general information about potential therapies. We then, um, around lunchtime, have a tumor board where there's a surgeon, a radiation oncologist, a medical oncologist, and, an, and um, often an interventional pulmonologist as well present, uh, where we go over all the patients who've come to the, M uh, the MDC on that particular day. And we come up uh, with the treatment plan for them. And depending, as Leah said, it's often the patient may not need all three specialists. They may need two, for example. So whoever is the most appropriate team member to see the patient will then see the patient in sequence afterwards. Um, so I think it has advantages for patients in that they get a, um, an educational experience about their diagnosis and what they're going through. And hopefully, um, I think information and knowledge helps um, reduce some of the anxiety which they're um, understandably suffering. And then afterwards, uh, we come up with a clear plan for them and move it forward from there. And actually, Russell Pales has published on, on this and shown that if you introduce a multidisciplinary clinic, it both uh, reduces cost and also speeds up the time to when a patient will have a definitive treatment for their cancer, which I think is very useful. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Um, we're going to move now to you know the main discussion. And Leah, in order to help our listeners understand the importance of this clinical trial, Checkmate A16, will you mind sharing with our listeners what is the overall outcome of patients with a stage one to three that undergo surgical resection? Well, NJ, I have to say, I feel like the kind of opening out salvo, opening act to uh, Patrick <laughs> and what he's going to fully expand on as a primary author of this study results. But I'll just, I'll give a, a brief insight as to my view and, and viewing the results through the lens of surgery or from, as a surgeon. I think the biggest thing that stands out to me is the fact that these are all resectable patients. And so if you think about it, the bar is pretty high, right? Because these are resectable patients that so are already coming from a more favorable standpoint than say the majority of patients presenting for lung cancer or with a new diagnosis of lung cancer. And so the last thing you want to do is come up with some sort of treatment algorithm that's going to otherwise diminish their, uh, the benefit of, of resectability. So, I mean, that's the thing that stands out to me the most. I think the, uh, the outcomes, the primary outcomes being the intermediary outcomes that we'll talk about too, with pathologic complete response and, and major pathologic response are really important as well. And I think it's, uh, as far as the, the, the main findings of the uh, improved benefits of both of those two outcomes uh, with the uh, addition of immunotherapy combined with uh, chemotherapy with huge differences between the two groups, I think is really uh, potentially anyway going to be a game changer. Um, because even when you think about patients with stage one disease, you know, um, even if you lumped all three together to just stage one, A, B, and C, you know, there's still a not insignificant number of patients who, despite our best, you know, adhering to all of the, all the, the, the treatment algorithms and recommendations and so on, we're still going to recur, which just goes to show you that our staging is, 
incomplete and that our treatment algorithms are um, not optimal. So I think this is a huge potential move in the right direction to get us closer to our target. Thank you so much for sharing that, Leah. I think, you know, having you here, it is great for, because we often don't have a surgeon in our podcast. So your perspective is very valuable. And, you know, my father always wanted me to be a thoracic surgeon. I just deviated a little bit. Both of my parents are surgeons. <laughs> so I think just being your friend and having you here, we make my father a little bit happier. Happy to do that. Because <laughs> yeah, he's like, at least do some of the specialties we have procedure. I'm like, no, I'm going to become a medical oncologist then. So. Wow. I always invite my oncology colleagues to the OR with me, um, but I have yet to have any takers. <laughs> <laughs> So now we're going to, you know, move forward with Patrick about the data that he presented at this past AACR about neoadjuvant nivolumab uh, plus chemo and patients with resectable no small cell lung cancer. We were asking you to summarize, you know, this large presentation uh, in a very short amount of time. So can you share the (laughs) results with us? No no problem, Angie. I'll try and keep it as brief as I can. But uh, so... So this was a, a phase three trial, uh, which was conducted across the world. About 50% of the patients were from Asia and about 50% from the rest of the world, including North America. It enrolled um, 300, 358 patients with um, stage 1B to 3A and non-small cell lung cancer who had just been diagnosed. One uh, subtext is that it was in the seventh edition, so patients stage 1B, four centimeters or greater, stage 2 and 3A were enrolled. About half of the patients enrolled actually had stage 3A uh, disease. Um, So relatively locally advanced tumors, although surgically uh, resectable. Um, Those patients, those 358 patients were randomized one is to one to receive either the control arm, uh, which was standard platinum double chemotherapy for three cycles, or platinum delta chemotherapy for three cycles plus nivolumab. So a total of three doses of chemo nevo or chemo. And after they completed that, um, three cycles of therapy, they had standard surgical resection with appropriate uh, nodal assessment during surgery. Post-operatively, um, there was no mandated therapy in the trial. So that's where this trial is a little bit different to some of the other neoadjuvant trials where post-operative immunotherapy was administered. In this trial, the patient and clinician could choose to have further chemotherapy post-op or they could choose not to depending on their uh, decision and there was no uh, mandated immunotherapy post-op. The primary endpoints of the study were pathological complete response which is what we presented at the the ACR meeting uh, recently and the final uh, results of that endpoint and we're still following the patients for event-free survival which was the other primary endpoint. And one of the key secondary endpoints in the study is overall survival. So at the ACR meeting recently, we presented the results for PCR, and it was a positive study for that endpoint. Um, The pathological complete response rate with chemo alone was 2.2%, and uh, that was increased to 24% with the addition of nivolumab. Um, And also the depth of pathological response was also increased. So the median amount of residual tumor at the time of resection uh, with chemo alone was, I think, 74% versus 10% with uh, chemo plus nivolumab. Um, 
There were a number of other findings, which I'll briefly touch on. Um, the radiographic response, um, so the rate of the tumor shrinking significantly was increased uh, when you added nivolumab to chemotherapy. And apart from that, we also looked across different subgroups. So PDL1 status, smoking status, um, histology, um, TMB, and there didn't appear to be um, the benefit from adding nivolumab to chemo, at least for PCR, was uh, present across all those subgroups. The other important thing, I think, as Leah mentioned, was the question of toxicity and, and surgical operability, because that's because these patients have potentially curable cancer with surgery, though, as Leah said, many of them uh, will eventually experience relapse. Um, the uh, one important thing we were looking at was whether uh, this would um, delay surgery, would it impair surgery, increase toxicity? And um, there didn't appear to be a significant difference in toxicity between the two arms of the trial or in terms of delays to surgery, which was gratifying, I think. Um, so, and one other point, um, there, uh, the rates of immune-mediated toxicity in the nivolumab chemo arm were also pretty low. Um, there were only two patients out of a out of um, the nevo chemo arm had pneumonitis, and those were both uh, low-grade events, which didn't impair surgery. So overall, we were um, we were very encouraged by these results. Um, and happy to present them at the meeting and um, a, a thankful to all of the patients and the families who participated in this trial because it's a very stressful time when you're first diagnosed with lung cancer for patients and these patients chose to take part in this trial to try and advance treatment for, for themselves but also for patients with lung cancer more generally. Well, thank you, Patrick, for summarizing a, a study that took time, money, and a lot of effort in a few minutes. You know, the study was certainly the subject of conversation during AACR. Like there was a lot of people talking about this. And, you know, I oft, I have two of my surgeons on like speed dial and like you tend to like find these people that work for you. And I, I remember sending the, the link to the surgeons I work with. So, Leah, you know, imagine that you have a magic ball. <laughs> what would these surgical challenges that you would expect to see? if this therapy becomes the standard of care um, for these patients with resectable disease? One thing that I would just back up briefly too to state, um, because I didn't think that Patrick pulled this piece out distinctly, but also when I look at it, you know, one of the potential criticisms, if you would, would be that, well, you know, you're only measuring those patients that who actually had resection, right? I mean, so you have no idea if you're otherwise just, you know, selecting out those patients for whom you were going to have a bad outcome, uh, regardless, and therefore you have the, no endpoint with which to measure. But I mean, even if you account for the patients who didn't undergo surgery for, for the various reasons listed in, in the trial, uh, some of which were for disease progression, you still had that uh, significant advantage, did you not, um, associated with the Pembro arm, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a good point, Lee. I didn't mention, but the the figure of PCR, uh, which is the primary endpoint, was the intention to treat population. So it was all it was all patients enrolled, and that included, I think, um, I that included patients who did not undergo resection. Um, so, so I think it was the most conservative definition you could make of it, um, and it still showed a 
approximately a, thir- a 13 fold increase in the um in the pcr rate and i think what's more interesting as well is the fact that, that the median amount of residual tumor was fairly significantly reduced from 70 i think it was 74 percent down to 10 percent um so hopefully it's not just those patients who have a pcr um, or having benefit it's possible across the cohort of patients more uh, more generally and um, there may be benefit as well you know um and the other thing I would mention is just that it was, it was a relatively locally advanced population of patients. So, so, so about fifty percent of the patients had clinical stage three A. So, relatively, uh, so either end two positive nodes or patients who had larger primary tumors, however, still surgically resectable. Still, really compelling data. But to your question, NJ, about challenges. I mean, I, the, I think the biggest challenge from a surgeon standpoint is, as I mentioned, anything that's going to remove the opportunity for surgery in an otherwise resectable patient. And for that, it would really mostly be limited to any adverse reactions related to treatment. Um, I mean, in this trial, the you know incidence of major adverse reactions is incredibly low, and and and. And even for those that were less severe, the delays in getting them to surgery were still also very, very short. Uh, and, and otherwise for the majority fell within the confines of the six week window of the surgery. So, I mean, I think in this study, the safety profile is incredibly good. Um, there are of course other studies where it's not quite as shining of an example, but I would say that anything that would otherwise take surgery off the table would be would be problematic, um, and how do you predict that and deal with that is a whole, a whole other vein of, of discussion, if you will. The only other thing that I would point out, uh, as far as the surgical outcomes go, would be the um, higher use of thoracotomy as a surgical approach, as opposed to minimally invasive techniques. And it's not completely clear to me if uh, this was a surgeon choice up front, um, although. The companion study that did uh, that did uh, talk about the surgical outcomes had a relatively low conversion rate overall, uh, and the conversion rate didn't differ between the two treatment arms. So it was sort of 11%, I think, versus 16% conversion to uh, open thoracotomy from a minimally invasive approach. So, uh, but still, like 60% of folks were having thoracotomy, and I think that that just speaks to a the fact that you had you know. Uh, a, 50% or so patients with stage 3A disease and, and probably a lot of surgeon preference there when it comes to um, your threshold for uh, approaching surgery minimally invasively on someone that you know has had a lot of treatment uh, preoperatively. You get um, perinodal inflammation. It's really, and that's really the thing that creates a much more technically challenging operation usually is dealing with uh, peritumoral inflammation, but mostly perinodal inflammation because the nodes tend to be smack dab on the uh, main vasculature um, uh, to the to the lung. So from a technical standpoint, we probably need to tease that out a little bit more. Why was there uh, conversion? And, and 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 probably there was the nodal issue, but then also too the um, um, can't recall if it was this study or a different study. I think it was a different study um, that notes you know higher rates of uh, pleural adhesions probably from some element of pleuritis associated with some low-grade pneumonitis that in and of itself uh, is, a, is a reason for, for converting to. So not just the nodal 
dissection and, and hilar um, vasculature, but also um, adhesions. And that's pretty difficult to predict. And thank you so much. Like I always, you know, try to, to put things together about what would be the best approach. And of course I don't get close to any assumption when I say something, the surgeon is like, no, 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 we're going to do this. But um, <laughs> it, it makes tons of sense. Moving a little bit, you know, associated with that question, Leah, is there something specific that you may have a patient in the neoadjuvant chemo plus immunotherapy? Will be something that we make you pull the trigger and taking the patient to OR. We talk about toxicities associated with therapy, but will be something like worsening of certain symptoms or the development of pneumonitis that we make you say, we need to stop this neoadjuvant therapy and take the patient to the OR. Yeah, that would be the only one that I could, that, that would jump out at me it would be the development of pneumonitis or progressive dyspnea, uh, particularly depending upon their tumor and the extent of resection that's going to be planned for that patient. I mean, the other thing to note uh, for this trial is the fact that the rate for pneumonectomy was relatively low in comparison to the chemo alone arm. So, you know, you're, you're always trying to balance, well, if I do a thoracotomy, there's more morbidity there, but still much less morbidity if I'm able to actually save a lobe and avoid a pneumonectomy in a patient. So trying to do a pneumonectomy on someone that you know is going to need that pneumonectomy and the setting of active pneumonitis would be a disaster. That'd be a terrible setup. So that'd probably be the only, you know, subpopulation or circumstance where I'd be really worried and want to otherwise just proceed uh, with surgery as planned, if possible. Thank you. And, you know, we're relearning this whole neoadjuvant and lung cancer. Like we're having these trials, but we're also learning about like reusing some of the endpoints that other areas of oncology may use more frequently. And that's pathologic complete response, right? That was not a term that was used a lot. A major pathologic response as particularly endpoints. And to both of you, which do you think there are implications, you know, having to le relearn this, not only for the current patients, but the patients that are going to be treated in the future and the patients that are trying to you know find out if this neoadjuvant approach would be for them. So where are the implications of changing these endpoints now, you know, with lung cancer in the adjuvant setting? And I will start with Patrick. Yeah, I think, so I think it's new to us all in the lung cancer world, really. It's, it's been around in breast cancer, as you mentioned, NJ, for several years. In this particular trial, it's actually, I think, the first one to use a blinded, um, independent uh, pathology review to assess PCR or pathological complete response. So it was a group of pathologists who were not involved in the study and were blinded to which, uh, which arm of the study uh, the samples were coming from. And it was done using both the primary tumor and the resected lymph nodes. So they looked at both and they said, is this a PCR or not? Um, and then afterwards, when the study was unblinded for the PCR endpoint, uh, and that difference between the arms became evident. Um, major pathological re response has, so as you mentioned, has gotten a lot of um, coverage in the last few years. And mainly because historically, a major pathological response is defined as 10% or less um, residual viable cancer in the lung cancer um, after a neoadjuvant therapy. And the idea uh, for major pathologic response was that um, 
we, we historically have not seen PCR very commonly in lung cancer after chemo, only about 2% on average. Um, whereas major pathological response, you see it about 20% of the time after chemo. So it was felt as something which was achievable in lung cancer. And um, the FDA and the, um, the ISLC came together and, and set out a kind of consensus paper on major pathologic response. Ironically, I think with these data with PCR, uh, where we are seeing true, true levels of PCR, 24% in this study, um, I think potentially PCR is a more, um, it's an easier endpoint to uh, determine in that it's the presence um, or the absence of residual tumor. It's not trying to, uh, to measure a percent residual tumor, you know. Um, so I think uh, most of the, uh, the ongoing phase three trials um, they have a mixture of event-free survival, uh, which is analogous to disease-free survival, um, plus a pathological endpoint as well, which has been major pathologic response, but I wonder if some of them will end up changing to PCR after these results. Um, and I think well, one of the advantages of the neoadjuvant setting is that you get this early readout where after three or four cycles of chemo, uh, perhaps with um, immunotherapy, you get a readout at the time of surgery and you can see has this worked for this patient at least pathologically and uh, do we need to give further therapy post-operatively um, or not um, and can we uh, make shared decisions about that you know thank you and Leah what do you think you know adding these two to the things that we're learning and incorporating to thoracic oncology as a whole you know, I'll just say that that last point to that Patrick, you brought up about uh, having basically um, a window into your uh, the efficacy of your current treatment or the treatment here up to that point um, based on pathologic review is huge. I use that with patients um, not infrequently and let them know like you're getting so much bang for your buck, having been through all the various treatment that's that you've already been through. And this is going to be a, a a treasure trove to use this term again of information that we're going to get by get, having your tumor excised and having the entire thing laid out there for us, you know? So I, I completely agree with, with everything Patrick said. I think that when you get new interventions or interventions that have um, more profound results, even that you do sometimes need to change your measuring stick and adapt it to be a little bit more accurate and more sensitive and more meaningful to, to measure the things of interest um, because there's orders of magnitude difference and mechanisms of action are different. So you do have to have that adaptability there. Um, and, I, and I think that both NPR and PCR are sort of intuitive um, intermediary outcomes, which we think are going to be and have been shown at least in several studies to be predictive of our other more crude metrics that we've been tethered to with, you know, event-free survival, progression-free survival. Thank you so much. And, and, you know, I really like this thing about a window into is this treatment working or not? Because we usually don't have the adjuvant therapy, right? Like you're giving chemotherapy to a blind, you know, goal. Like, is there any cancer left? Is what patients ask me. Like, well, we have to do chemotherapy we can recommend chemotherapy and this is a very small benefit, but here we go. I think it also provides them with a nice little psychological boost. Honestly, when you're talking about now really extending the treatment for 
say a stage one patient, right? Normally they would have just come in and had surgery and that's it, you know, but now you give them neoadjuvant plus surgery, maybe adjuvant uh, afterwards, you know, what's going to help sustain the patient, I think, or one of the things that can help sustain them over this marathon worth of treatment is, you know, positive reinforcement along the way, like, hey, this is really working, you know, I think it's, 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 uh, it's more than just the surface value too. And I think that's very true because sometimes I encounter, oh, but the surgeon took it all. Why do I need this chemotherapy? Or why are you suggesting chemotherapy? And it can be a hard sell. You know, we don't have great numbers for adjuvant chemotherapy. And for some patients, it can be very rough, those four cycles of systemic therapy. So the ISLC through the Lone Ambition Alliance is supporting the NPR project to establish recommendations on standard processing and pathologic assessment of lung cancer resection specimens after neoadjuvant therapy. As we have mentioned in several occasions, it's something new for thoracic oncology. So Patrick, how reproducible had you found these assessments and can you comment on how, you know, the NPR project can be helpful in this case? Yeah, I think... um... So it's been a very valuable project with multiple pathologists, um, surgeons, medical oncologists involved in it with the ISLC. And I think uh, the the potential use, I think, as we were talking a few minutes ago, is in that early readout in terms of of benefit from from a therapy um, given preoperatively. And I think whether it ultimately ends up being major pathological response or pathological complete response, which is kind of becomes a registrational endpoint. Um, and it should be made clear at the moment, it's not currently, um, a pathological complete response has been accepted as an endpoint in one um, setting in breast cancer. It's not currently so accepted, for example, here in the US by the FDA as an endpoint in lung cancer. However, we hope perhaps in the future it may be. Um, but I think both of these endpoints, NPR and PCR, can, as you both mentioned, provide a window into whether a treatment is being effective or not. And you could envisage scenarios, for example, in the future where novel therapies, we're seeing so many new drugs and new therapies being developed and approved. It's almost every month uh, there's a new therapy approved for metastatic lung cancer. Um, So you could envisage a scenario where some of those new therapies are moved more rapidly into early stage disease in these window of opportunity studies where you give uh, the patient receives a short course of the therapy prior to surgery. And you get a readout with, for example, major pathological response to see if that therapy actually helped that patient or not, you know, or helped at least in terms of um, killing uh, the tumor cells. So I think that's one potential thing. I think the other thing which the ISLC have been, have been kind of at the forefront over the years is standardizing what we do and that's been clear with the staging projects, for example. Um, but I think also with uh, with major pathologic response, because you're talking about 10% or less residual viable tumor, and that depends on a lot of different things. Uh, what do you count as being the tumor bed? Uh, which elements of the tumor, say, for example, necrosis or inflammation, would you count as part of the of the 100% from where you're going to derive the 10%. So I think standardizing that, which has been done by uh, Dr. Travis and colleagues in that paper um, published in JTO now, I think uh, about two years ago, I think is very helpful. Um, And ultimately it'll move the uh, the field forward because as I mentioned, we're seeing so many developments for patients with with metastatic lung cancer, which are very uh, welcome 
and we're all very excited about. But we're still seeing an early stage disease where we have platinum doublet chemotherapy as the standard, as you mentioned. Um, we have osimertinib, which has now been approved for the subset of patients with, uh, with EGFR mutations in their tumor. And we will have data, I should mention, at ASCO as well, being presented by Dr. Wakeley on um, at, at the Empire 10 trial, which is is looking at adjuvant atezolizumab. So we're finally seeing some changes in early stage disease, but I think we need to try and move some of these therapies forward a, a little bit more quickly to resectable lung cancer and try and cure some of, of these patients who would not otherwise be cured by surgery alone. Thank you so much. And unfortunately, we're coming almost to the end of our time together. So to both of you, do you think the data from Checkmate 816 would change the standard of care? Or is that too early to say? And I'm going to start with Leah, and then I will move to Patrick. Yeah, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> I think it's it, it's still a little bit early. I mean, I think this is, you know, the latest and greatest and best data to date that we have. I think we still have to wait for the full data to mature and uh, identify and have some reproducibility, if you will, on the same scale. Um, I think it's incredibly uplifting and 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 positive. And so it's likely to be a game changer. I'm just not certain that we're quite there yet. And Patrick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I agree completely with Lee. I think um I think it's very encouraging and we were delighted to see these results when uh, when the study was unblinded for PCR. And I think um I think we're still following these patients for, for event-free survival, which I think is potentially a practice-changing endpoint uh, when it matures. So we will be continuing to follow up, uh, follow up these patients and stay tuned. Hopefully soon we'll have more data. Well, you know, I also agree, I think it's early, but we're now incorporated terms to our thoracic oncology word that, you know, we're now common, like adjuvant targeted therapy, neoadjuvant immunotherapy progression, um, a pathologic complete response. And now we're adding like, yeah, we can target KRAS. So the entire world of thoracic oncology is evolving. And I think we're going to have arms like some other area, some other cancers do it because lung cancer, it is a different disease and it's not the same in each case. Exactly. And yeah, I agree completely. <laughs> it is an exciting time to be in thoracic oncology. No, only in medical oncology, you know, surgical oncology, oncology as well. So I'm wrapping up this podcast and I would like to thank you, Leah and Patrick, for your time, your insights. And I want to thank the audience for listening. Don't forget to like the podcast and to share with your colleagues and friends. Thank you so much, Leah and Patrick. Thank you, NJ. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you both very much. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.